will now shift to their location on Harrisburg Boulevard in the city's east end. A Greyhound spokesperson said that the Harrisburg location will enable the company to continue to provide bus riders with convenient and affordable travel. The location will have 24-hour self-serve ticket sales for buses bound for Dallas and New Orleans. Temperatures will climb into the upper 60s today, while most of the Houston area is under threat of severe weather tomorrow as another cold front approaches. Rain and thunderstorms are expected, with isolated severe thunderstorms possible Thursday. Forecasters are also warning that the storm could bring damaging winds and isolated tornadoes as it moves in. Clouds and rain are expected to stay in the forecast through the weekend. Support this local newscast and this station now by becoming a member at kpft.org. And thanks for tuning in to 90.1 KPFT Houston. To growing up in America here on 90.1 FM KPFT Pacifica Radio. Um, today we're having a discussion on our children, public policy, and how do we as a city and community do when it comes to taking care of all of our kids. I'm not your usual host, Claire Dutre, but she will be here momentarily, and I'm here with a special guest, Paul. Hey, Dahlia. Thanks for having me today. It's good to be here. Of course. We're so excited to have you on children, I mean, at growing up in America. Um, so, of course, we're going to do our typical regular segments today, data of the day, thumbs up, thumbs down. Um, our teaser number today is 8 to 10,000. That's Eight a big 10, range. 8 That is a big range, yeah. Any so, guesses? Any guesses on what that could be? Wow. Um, I don't know. The number of kids waiting for a Barbie uh, Ken set for the holidays. You I, think that uh, would be as low as eight? Yeah, <laughs> well, just in just in the Houston area, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, okay. the, you know, back order. 
I'm thinking the number of PS5s sold on Black Friday. Oh, Because everybody already got those. And I heard it was a record like Black Friday. I heard a lot of people went shopping. All right. Well, maybe that's still too low. (laughs) Um, But we're also going to have some special guests. We have Alicia Lee from the MCH Collective Impact Report um, that's done by the March of Dimes. We'll have our very own Linda Corchado, the director of the Children's Immigration Network. We'll hear from Dr. Srila Sharma at UT Health Houston. And we'll f- close off with Lisa Descant from Communities and Schools. Okay, that sounds like a really good lineup, right? I think so, too. Um, let's get started with our thumbs up, thumbs down today. So our question is, is it important for ter- parents to teach their children about cultural diversity from a young age? What do you think, Dahlia? I mean, I, I've got a 21-year-old. I tried to, I think we tried to expose her early to a variety of people, and so she recognized diversity early on. Mm-hmm. And, and I think even in my own upbringing, I felt that was helpful to me. Really? Um, I met, yeah, I met kids from different, I, I grew up in Iowa, but I right. met kids from other parts of the world. I had a Korean best friend mm-hmm. and a kid from Thailand in my community, wow. and I met them early on. I, I thought I really learned a lot from them, and I learned that not everybody's exactly the same there are mm-hmm. cultural differences and i think that has helped me in my in my life you know totally yeah would I you mean, agree are you thumbs up on that one? oh i'm definitely thumbs up i mean i don't have kids but i think my parents we did a lot of travel so i think that really exposed me to so much and shaped my worldview from like a very young age i'm also mixed race and i think that mm. is super like I'm already a cultural diversity in itself, yeah, so I think that was exposure, but then made me curious about other cultures, because yeah. I have two in me, you know? Yeah, and, and you know, I'm a white guy, right? So <laughs> I think growing up, and in Iowa, you know, we mm-hmm. had some diversity, but not as much as a lot of other places do, certainly as much as we have in, in Houston, right? Yeah. So I think it was good for me, and, and again, those those experiences I had very early on with those families have really helped me to realize the world is bigger than just me and my household. Right. Right. I mean, I think so too. I grew up in a university town, so it was actually more diverse than you would think for Alabama. Um, But I think all the exposure to kids from different cultures and our school did a really great job of celebrating cultures. I think that Mm. was very impactful, but what are some reasons that maybe we shouldn't be teaching children from a young age about cultural diversity? It's hard for me to come up with too many, but, you know, maybe, I mean, I think you'd certainly want your kids to understand, too, who they are, right, mm-hmm. where they come from, mm-hmm. right? not just think about other people and their diversity, but really understand who they are, their heritage, right? Um, and so that is important, and then how that relates with others, so kind of know yourself, I think, is important for a kid. Totally. Yeah, I don't know what you, what, what thoughts do you have on I mean, why you wouldn't? I think I agree with the potential that it could confuse them, especially if you start very young, it's like, oh, why can't I be? Thai or why can't I be Korean Mm -hmm. it's like that's not really how it works Mm -hmm. and so then that could lead maybe to appropriation which is a there's a fine line there Mm -hmm. um I think another thing would be that it emphasizes differences so should we be emphasizing the differences or I think celebrating is more how we see it but some parents may think of that as oh I don't want my kids to point out who's different yeah, no, that's uh, that's totally a good point. And I, I do think sometimes we're more alike than we're different, right? Totally. So we need to also remind ourselves that we're we're very similar. Humans are human, but, you know, there are those cultural differences. And I think as long as we remind ourselves of those differences in a, in a celebratory way, I think is what you're saying. Completely. Makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it also, a pro would be that it's really preparing kids to enter what globalized world that we live in now. I mean everybody is so interconnected yeah. they need to have an understanding absolutely i mean even just locally the diversity we have so understanding well he's been the, special <laughs> yeah that's true we are right and but but then you're right globally i mean we we interact from a business econo- mm-hmm. economic standpoint even cultural standpoint even all the arts and everything that we see on tv right a lot of cross-culturalism so i think all that is important to learn fairly soon but yeah. we do have to be careful that kids do know who they are and where they come from what are some ways that you helped expose your children to diversity yeah um so my daughter you know got uh to know some of our um international friends early on mm-hmm. and kids that like i'd mentioned i grew up with that have their families and so she saw them and saw that also through school um, mm-hmm. she went to an elementary school that really celebrated diversity and showcased that right yeah. and so she and they would have celebrations on, on a variety of 
different cultures. We also grew up in a, she grew up in a Jewish community. Yeah. So there was that cultural difference yeah. as well. So she got exposed through school and through us. And we, we made it pretty purposeful for mm-hmm. her. Yeah. I think that's great that you did make the concerted effort. That's really what is important. Being a return Peace Corps volunteer, you know, it's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of in the, in the makeup, right? Yeah, so, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah. Um, I think we're going to get our next host, Claire Dutre is here now. So let's turn it over to her. <laughs> Claire is here. There she I know, is. My dramatic entrance. Everyone's been waiting for And the red carpet we rolled out and everything for you. <laughs> I know I'm no Taylor Swift, but I'll take it. <laughs> How are you doing, Paul? I was I'm hearing that well. exciting conversation. Yeah, we're doing well. Dahlia was a great co-host before we got to you. I so. heard. It's yeah. all right. I know our listeners are eager to have her back on the air, so we're going to have her up here for a full show soon. Yeah. We've yeah. got a good lineup today, too. We do. I see that we have our first guest, Alicia Lee, the director at MCH Collective Impact at March of Dimes. So excited to talk about Prematurity Awareness Month and how March of Dimes is releasing their next report card. Oh, or have released on November 16th. If we can get Alicia on the line. We are back, and we're excited to have Alicia Lee with us. Alicia, how are you today? Hello. Good afternoon. I'm so thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Yes, we are excited to talk about the work you're doing at March of Dimes, especially in Prematurity Awareness Month. If you could start with just giving kind of an overview of March of Dimes' current work, especially in your annual Prematurity Report card that just went out. Yeah, sure. So this is uh, the 20th anniversary of Prematurity Awareness Month, and it's really to call that global spotlight around the world on the state of maternal and infant health. Um, Also, you know, we talk about what's going on here in the United States. Um, We launched, March of Dimes launched Prematurity Awareness Month to really bring attention to our alarming rise in preterm birth rates. Um, And our report card, it showcases our latest national as well as our state-level data to provide that insight onto what is going on with our moms, with our babies, and with our families. So excited to um, show y'all, tell y'all, the listeners, um, what's going on in Harris County and Texas and the United States. Yeah, I look forward to hearing about that, Alicia, because I think this was your 20th anniversary of this report. Is that right? Um, it's correct. It's the 20th anniversary of Prematurity Awareness Month, oh, and gotcha. our report card. Yeah, and we release the report card every every November in conjunction with that. Yeah, that makes sense. I know we're going to dig into this year, but I'd love to hear since it's been 20 years where you've seen trends continue to increase or decrease and steady out. Yeah, so you know, across the United States. Um, unfortunately, what we have seen this year is that we only, we showed a meager improvement from last year in our preterm birth rate. Um, and last year at 10.5%, it was our highest preterm birth rate in 10 years, um, which there's a multitude of factors of what causes preterm birth rate that I think we're going to get into in our conversation. But we know that prematurity, it affects um, our moms, our babies, and it's fueled by our disparities in our healthcare system, our communities, and our institutions. Our preterm babies, they may have more health problems later. Uh, it sometimes could include their brain development, lungs, heart, eyes, other organs. They may have to spend time in the hospital's neonatal intensive care unit because they're too sick to go home. Um, and they need that special medical care. And unfortunately, preterm birth, it can also lead to uh, lifelong health problems. 
you know, this could be cerebral palsy or intellectual disabilities, blindness, potential hearing loss. So some of those newborn screenings that we um, have seen, we see in our hospital settings and in our birth centers, it's all to to, to test and as a result of um, some of the um, the the research and the um, all of the great things that have happened as our physicians and researchers are looking at how do we really prevent preterm birth and the complications that arise as a result. Yeah, and then pivoting to this year, we saw that Texas is graded a D minus. How did you determine that grade, and what is that compared on a national scale? Sure. Yeah. So every the United States and every single country plus the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico, we give them a letter grade. Just like in school, you get a letter grade, and typically an A is a great grade. And then as you go um, further down, um, in Texas we have a we have a D minus. Um, it's the we are at the same rate that we were at letter rate that we were at last year. There's about one in nine babies in Texas is born preterm. Eleven point three percent. This compares to the United States, which is at a um, 10.4% of our um, nation's babies are born preterm, so 1 in 10. Um, our national rate is a D plus. In Texas, we're a D minus. And then, you know, we can talk a little bit about Harris County as well. This sounds like it's continuing to be a big issue over these 20 years you've been doing this report, and we're not seeing a lot of improvement. Um, what, do, what do we do about this? How do we address this in terms of helping, you know, moms and babies uh, start off on the right start uh, and, and get, you know, ensure that they're healthy from the beginning? How can we, as, as parents and others in the community, help address this? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the, the good news is, the positive news is, is there is there's a lot that can happen with our community, um, regardless of where you sit. So if um, you are a general listener, if you're a, a patient, a family with our policymakers, um, at March of Dimes, we are committed to developing awareness. So talking with y'all, um, letting your listeners hear, like, what's going on, that's the first, that's the first step in in having everyone aware of what is going on in our country when it comes to our, our health of our babies. We provide education to our healthcare professionals, as well as at Marsha Dines, we are committed to advocating for issues of importance regarding the health of our moms and our babies at um, the local level, at the state, as well as at the federal level. And there are a couple of exciting things that have happened, both um, statewide as well as locally in Houston and Harris County, um, that um, have really helped to, um, that will help and will be a part of those solutions towards um, stemming and preventing preterm birth. Um, On the most notable front statewide is um, our state legislature this past regular session, they passed HB 12. Um, and it was, it provides 12 months of Medicaid coverage postpartum to women who um, have recently delivered. And this means in the state of Texas, it's about 180,000 women wow. who have coverage for one year after they give birth, right? That's, you know, That's a huge you, you hear about yeah, these statistics, yeah. but when you think about all of those women who lose, currently lose coverage after, after 60 days after they give birth. Um, that's, that's not enough time to make sure that that woman, um, is able to be healthy, um, and to continue, um, to get preventative care as well as potentially any medication she may need. Um, so 180,000 women starting on March 1, 2024, um, those women will be able to get that primary care doctor, um, visit for 12 months. They'll be able to see a behavioral or a mental health specialist or a therapist or a counselor um, because we know one in in seven women is what they tell us are experiencing some sort of postpartum um, depressive disorder. We believe that it's uh, it's a lot higher than that just due to the stigma that surrounds postpartum depression, postpartum um, blues. Um, we also know women will be able to get medication. Um, you know, that is one of, if you have high blood pressure, we know one of the best ways for controlling high blood pressure, hypertension that arises um, during pregnancy, can be exacerbated during pregnancy, is to have your blood pressure medication and to have regular access and to take that. And so mm-hmm. now these individuals will be able to have medication to control some of those chronic diseases that um, they haven't been able to because in Texas we don't offer um 
you know, low income healthcare insurance to our, um, our individuals who, um, who, who need access to it and if they're not pregnant. Yeah. That's yeah. such a good example of how advocacy can play a major role, right, in improving yeah, policy and, and helping yeah. women and children. Thanks for that great example. Yeah, and, you know, super grateful to all of the folks, including, um, you know, y'all and Children at Risk and the organizations who really um, have been at the forefront of this and have been um, launching um, that drumbeat with our legislators um, for, for many years. And it took all of us um, to to get this across the across that signature line. So you know, big big thanks to Representative Tony Rose in the House, um, to Senator Lois Colquhurst in the Senate, and then as well as Governor Abbott um, for signing the bill. Um, yeah. And then our tireless you know um, Health and Human Services folks, um, our our state workers who are who are who are charged with implementing it. Um, because we know that that is um, going to be one of the the great um, pieces of the puzzle we now have for these women. Uh, but we got to make sure they know they have this, this coverage now, yeah. um, because because they haven't ever had it. Um, and so, how do we make sure that that gets out? So, I'm really excited to see how groups come together to implement um, this 12 months of postpartum coverage. Yeah, Alicia, I know that's the next step, and I appreciate Marcia Dimes and all the advocacy partners that keep moving, both statewide and national, Um, just knowing a lot of women that are going to directly benefit from this. It's powerful in um, the small steps, but the big steps that we can take. So thank you so much. We look forward to having you back on because we are short of time right now to kind of break down this data a little bit more. Thanks for joining us today. That was great. Thank you all. On with us now, we have our very own Linda Corchado, Director of the Children's Immigration Network at Children at Risk. Linda, we are so excited to have you on as the immigration expert in all of Texas, claiming it, to talk a little bit about the special session for and what kind of bills are arising. Are you with us? Thank you. I'll take the crown. (laughs) We'll have it in the mail soon. For what I was saying with special session, for those listening that might not necessarily be tuned in or just hear it um, on the radio when they turn it on, can you give an overscope of what exactly a special special session is and means for our state? Well, what it felt like was (laughs) the governor just really forcing his agenda um, several times this year to really push through one the, the voucher um, efforts that he that you know well about Claire and also these um, border enforcement bills as they were packaged and so they would make some progress elected reps would and then if they didn't make that sort of if they didn't reach the level of success that the governor wanted them to reach they he called another special session over and over again. Um, and so what we saw here is that he was very victorious when it came to his border enforcement bills. Yeah, and when you speak about border enforcement bills, I know um, some have differing opinions that might be listening, but can you explain exactly what these bills over scope are and how they're in turn harmful for our state and our immigrant mm-hmm. populations? Mm-hmm. Well, um, two bills were... I mean, they're all very troubling. One really just amps up more money to build the border wall here in El Paso. Um, The other one is labeled as an anti-smuggling bill. Um, And if a person is caught and prosecuted, they would land up to 10 years of of confinement for smuggling a person. Um, remarkably, what a lot of people were commenting there is that murder lands in five years, for example. Um, so this seems incredibly harsh, and it's also right. strict liability. So if you do it, there really is no room for a judge to um, navigate and give you a lesser sentence, for example. Um, but what has been the most um, 
troubling and what children at risk has really flagged was SB4, um, which empowers peace officers to arrest migrants all across the state um, if they suspect that that person entered without inspection. So, you know, Claire, I talked to you about these border bills, but what's interesting about SB4 is that it's really not. Um, the Texas, the elected officials could have confined uh, prosecution within a certain radius of the border, could have said this only applies to recent arrivals, but they didn't add those sorts of extra safeguards in, which means that it can really be enforced across the state, regardless of whether an immigrant has been here for decades or a week. Wow, that can, I mean, thanks Linda for sharing that. And, and that seems to be really put fear in the mind of many families right across the state, those that have been here for a while. Um, and obviously, how much, how, how do you think this will impact uh, families and children in Texas and, and across the, you know, across the border area? Right. Well, I mean, it can have a huge chilling effect. And a lot of us are anticipating a lot of litigation to, to stop this from happening. Um, but, you know, you can look at something like a daycare center. Um, we were at trying to get daycare centers classified as, as safe spaces like K-12 through schools are, um, but that amendment did not go through. So that means that a parent leaving their child at an ECE center um, could now be stopped by a peace officer with their kids in tow after they leave their kids, could be prosecuted um, and detained as well. Um, so this is just one way of how you can see this seed of harm really beginning to manifest and blossom against immigrants to immigrant families. Um, you know, you look at survivors of crime, of, of domestic violence. We want them to report crimes. We want families to get out of dangerous, uh, violent situations at home. But if they fear that if they come forward to report these crimes, that they can also um, be detained and expelled because of their immigration status, they're likely not going to do that. So it, it doesn't just impact them. It impacts all of us in the communities that we live in because we want to live in safer communities. Yeah, and not even when we talk about... Um it happening on a larger scale, thinking about the after effects of SB4 is it's really just bubbling up racial profiling, um, regardless of if that family member is detained. It's creating a dangerous precedent for law enforcement across the state. Exactly. I mean, what what does an immigrant look like, especially on the border? You know, that's that's where I live. And so I, I was just driving with my mother the other day and thought, God, I'm going to need to um, carry my passport with me. Right. And my mother always carries her passport because she's always felt, you know, she became a citizen um, over the years. But it's just that sort of level of discomfort that I myself as an immigration attorney am beginning to feel in my own hometown. Mm. Um, it's, it's horrific to think about kids, you know, kids who might see uh, this happen on a daily basis, having their parents stopped and questioned. Um, even if they're U.S. citizens, right? Because there, there is no one look of what a U.S. citizen looks like in America. It's really yeah. up to a peace officer to decide. Yeah, and even thinking of um, going way back to the Constitution, uh, America's a melting pot, right? And it's supposed to be we want to be welcome and we want um, everyone to come in and enjoy our economy and livelihood and whatever else may be. Um, but Texas is really creating and almost bubbling from Florida, this precedent of a lockdown um, border. And it's just scary to see kind of where this will proceed on in the next session. Yeah, I think that's a good point. You kind of wonder where it could go, right? right? Where even beyond where we're at now. And there's all that rhetoric, I think, that, that we see um, can really have an impact. But where, where might this go? Uh, do you have thoughts on that in terms of where we might see more influence uh, against uh, immigrants and migrants uh, in the future, Linda? Mm -hmm. Well, I think it'll certainly go to the Supreme Court, and, and I know that's, that's what um, Republicans in Texas want. Um, they want to challenge Arizona v. U.S., which is Supreme Court precedent that says, hey, the federal government has total control and autonomy over the enforcement of immigration laws. Texas wants to say, no, actually, we do as well. 
Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, you mentioned Florida, and I think what we're seeing there is an exodus of workers as well. What's Mm -hmm. hard about immigration is that we don't have a lot of documentation over, you know, how undocumented immigrants always uh, impact the economy. But if we see an exodus like this, we will see it and we'll feel the loss. And, And I just don't think that's something that Texas businesses are wanting to endure. Yeah. Well, Linda, we know people like you, if we wish we could have a Linda Corchado times 3000 in Texas, but are resilient um, and we're happy to have you and work as an organization with partners to push against and see um, hope for Supreme Court to push against this bill as well. And thank you for the work that we continue to do despite um, some of the challenges and barriers that keep arising. Thanks, Linda, for all you do. Yeah. Thanks, Paul. All right. Next up, we have Leila Mazzali, a director for Center for Social Measurement and Evaluation. She went for me slowly. Is she pushing up on me? Is she act like she know me? And I'm playing alone. Now she act like she want me. Is she pushing up on me? And she like karaoke. So she's singing along. On with us now, we have in-house DJ Leila Mazzali, just kidding, um, but in-house weather reporter from California and the director for Center for Social Measurement and Evaluation at Children at Risk. Leila, we have the number of the day as 8 to 10,000. Is that correct? That is correct. Well, I am excited because that is quite a large range of numbers we have there for you to tell us what that means in this name of Texas. Sure. Um, so, well, first, we didn't check in about the weather. Of course. Is it sunny? Are you going to brag about it again, Layla, like you always do? (laughs) She's like, I just want to throw that in there. I just answer honestly. Um, (laughs) It's it's sunny and mild. Um, (laughs) Well, you'd be a great meteorologist too, Layla. I mean, you you know, it's it's beautiful again today here. (laughs) (laughs) I'll call the California weather station, whatever that may be. It's a hard job, but somebody's got to do it. <laughs> right. So what does this range of numbers mean? So 8 and 10,000. Um, there are between 8 and 10,000 community schools nationwide. So that is a very, very large gap. I'm still kind of shocked on that. So where, who is tracking this and why is it from 8 to 10,000? That's a really good question. And I think that Part of the reason that the range is so wide is because there isn't necessarily a set of clear parameters that would allow a school to be distinguished as a community school versus another one. It's more like a framework, a guideline. Um, And this information is actually coming from the California Department of Education. Um, And they were reporting on this because California attempts to be kind of at the forefront of the community schools movement. Um, But a community school is a public school that serves pre-K through grade 12, um, and it establishes community partnerships that provide wraparound support for kids. Um, So these partnerships will improve academic outcomes, whole child engagement, family development, um, and they have proven success rates in lowering rates of absenteeism, improving work habits and test scores, um, higher enrollment in college prep classes, higher graduation rates, all kinds of good things. Are the eight schools in California? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I feel like those would be the standard. No, it's interesting. I uh, spoke with a couple organizations that talk about community schools nationwide and trying to trickle the model into Texas and some ISDs that do this with the funding available. But what does this really mean? Why do you think these outcomes are the strongest when you engage with the community effectively? Right. That's a great question. I mean, I think it's because kids are coming to the classroom with a range of complex needs, right? Kids are not just being deposited into classrooms, just sitting there ready to learn. Um, kids are coming to class with everything that's going on in their home environments they're coming to school with. So kids who are coming from low-income households, households that may be housing insecure, food insecure, all of these things are arriving to the classroom, bringing those challenges with them. And since schools are the forefront public institution that see kids outside of the home, it just makes sense that these schools, meeting them on all of these different levels, would have better success rates in terms of academic outcomes. Are there are there any downsides to it? I mean, I, I this sounds like such a great model, you know, and we're seeing the positive educational outcomes. But are there any downsides that you see? 
Well, I mean, I think, um, I mean, it, it really is a question of what we value because I think, you know, the downside is, of course, schools like this are more resource intensive. Um, they require more staffing. Um, they require people who have the free time outside of the roles within the school to reach out to those community partners, um, to bridge gaps with families. Um, so obviously all these different roles would need to be created and funded within schools, um, you know, family engagement coordinators, things like that. Um, so it, it definitely requires a higher public investment. Um, but, you know, in my view, it, I think the, the results speak for themselves. Yeah, the results are there, right? Yeah. yeah. And it's one school that serves pre-K through 12, too. So thinking of the capacity of a school building and uh, a network. But it's interesting to see and exciting to maybe in the future have you back on to talk about what the data looks like in terms of how this is scalable for larger ISDs. Because um, we see some programs in the family offices, but where they could advocate for more funding, like you said, for the capacity and the people in the building um, doing the work in that community partnership building. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, thank you, Layla. Enjoy your sunny and bright day. Yeah, we'll all be flying out soon. Again, Layla. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Next up, we have Dr. Srila Sharma from UT Health Houston to talk a little bit about Houston Area Food Access Analysis Tool. With us now, we have Dr. Srila Sharma from UT Health Houston. Dr. Sharma, how are you doing? Good. Good afternoon. How are you? Awesome. We are doing super yeah. well, enjoying this cooler weather, or at least I am. I love the cold. <laughs> I, I, I totally, you got your sweater on, too, today. I know, I know. I love uh, blowing the dust off the sweaters for the two weeks in Houston. <laughs> right. but, um, Dr. Sharma, we're excited to talk about Houston Area Food Access Analysis Tool um, in conjunction with UT Health Houston. But to start us off, can you just give our listeners an overview of what a food desert is? Sure. Um, I mean, essentially, the concept of food desert actually originated in, in countries where um, sufficient, uh, insufficient amount of food was grown to feed the population. Uh, in the U.S., that looks a little bit different in the sense that we actually have enough food that we grow, but um, there's a, a lack of uh, equity in terms of uh, access to, to food in different parts of uh uh, the the uh, area where you may live. So depending on where you live, you might have lower access to grocery stores um, and uh, and higher access to what we call food swamps, which is high density of fast food restaurants. And um, so typically, food deserts is where uh, uh, you know very broadly speaking, you have lower access to uh, to grocery and retail stores where you can purchase your food. And it's not just uh, necessarily a rural issue. I mean, this could be an urban issue as well. Those of us that live in cities, we think, oh, there's a lot of grocery stores around, but some communities don't have that or certainly don't have the food that's healthy and nutritional for their families, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, right here in in very urban Houston, we have uh, several pockets of, uh, you know, near north side or or sunny side or – uh, uh, different parts of the city that uh, are very much urban, but uh, definitely fall in the food desert areas where, uh, and, and, you know, I think you bring up a great point on, on access to healthy food, because mm-hmm. uh, that's absolutely right. When we think about food, it's not just access to any food, it's access to fresh, right, as well. Mm-hmm. And so definitely we see that uh, in both urban and, and rural parts of Texas. What, when you see these, you know, situations, um, what what kind of impact is that having on children and families when they don't have the access to the healthy nutritional foods that they need really to lead, you know, good lives, right? Well, and and for their well being, what what kind of impact do we see? Yeah, great, great question. And you know, we now have lots of data that allows us to have very good sightlines in regards to both uh, food security, which is lack of access to just consistent access to food, and 
nutrition security, which is um, lack of consistent access to healthy food. Um, so what what we do see, especially in children, is um, uh, that, uh, you know, there's, there's challenges and impact on academic achievement. I mean, one can only imagine that it's hard to focus and concentrate on your school day if you're hungry, right? And so we see impact on um, academic achievement. We also see uh, increased ED visits, uh, and uh, which is emergency room visits, and that's largely because uh, children who are, are food insecure um, uh, and lack of uh, have lack of access to healthy food, essentially um, have lower immune systems and are more susceptible to contracting uh, illnesses. I mean, we are in the flu season right now, right? And uh, RSV, and so. Um, if you have a compromised or lower immune uh, system, um, then you are much more susceptible to, uh, you know, contracting these infections, which then results further into, um, you know, missing uh, days from school. So it's kind of putting, you know, you sort of go in this cycle. And the last one I will say, which is uh, sometimes goes unnoticed, is we have a very large epidemic of um, dental caries, so cavities in, uh, in uh, teeth of, of yeah. children, and that's largely due to eating a lot of the unhealthy food and the sugary beverages uh, as well. So I would say those are some of the very uh, prevalent health impacts that we see. Yeah, and, and you can, I mean, all of that impacts children and their yeah. ability to learn, like you were saying, and their educational outcomes that they're going to have. Yeah. Um, and I, I think the food insecurity rates are, I've heard as much as 20 plus percent, right, across yeah. much of the state. Mm-hmm. Is, are the, is that the number yeah. you see? Yes, yes. So in Texas, we have uh, our rates of food insecurity are higher than the national average, which is right around 12 percent. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, okay. we are hovering around 20 percent. Yeah. Wow, wow, wow. wow. Yeah. It's a big yeah. issue, right? And so what do what do families and parents do if they're, you know, if they're not finding those healthy foods? Part of it, I, I would guess, is awareness building. But then, you know, what what does a family do that's in poverty or struggling with food insecurity to try to address this? And how do we uh, support it as a community? Yes, I love that you asked the second half mm-hmm. of that question. Because that's There's always, that's yeah, we got to jump in and help, right? Yeah. There's got to be, everyone needs to come together. Yes, we have to do we have to do better, and we have to invert the burden on these families that are you know the families that are food insecure are also concurrently struggling with transportation, paying their rent, utility bills, you know all of those. So, what well, you know there's, there's a wraparound services approach that um, that is available to many of the nonprofits, you know Baker Ripley, uh, United Way. Uh, we have Houston Food Bank uh, that around our, our region offer wraparound services uh, to families who walk in their doors, no questions asked. Um, and I, I think the one really big shift I have seen in a very positive direction is that uh, health system. So you go to your doctor, and our doctors are now asking mm-hmm. questions about, um, you know, what do you need in terms of social services? Uh, and so that is really important because, you know, kids go to their doctors and their dentists um, on a a, a regular basis, and uh, that's a great place to screen, um, you know, for these other needs as well, because guess what? A lot of their health outcomes are impacted by what's happening outside the four walls of the clinic, right? right? Whether they have enough food and, um, and, and, uh, and a a lot of uh, healthcare systems are providing prescriptions or food, uh, healthy food, that uh, organizations like the Food Bank, for example, are providing uh, fresh, healthy food. Uh, Brighter Bites is another nonprofit. They're providing fresh, healthy food to uh, a lot of these families, and especially that's critical during these holiday times, right, yeah. where there may be more. Uh, who doesn't want to have a good good meal uh, over the holidays? Uh, so, uh, so that, I think there's a lot happening. You know, in Texas, we roll up our sleeves and get to work, right? So there's a lot happening there uh, in response to these higher rates of food insecurity, uh, especially that we're seeing in our region with health systems and nonprofits and even for-profits like HEB and grocery stores, you know, coming to the table and saying, what is it that we can do better yeah. and how can we meet our families better where, where they need us? 
Dr. Sharma, it's perfect what you're saying. It's the interconnectivity of it all. So not just addressing one or the other, but seeing that they all intertwine. I know when we had the food bank on, especially they spoke to um, the access. So even as you say, food insecurity can lead to poor health outcomes, but then do they even have access to doctors and access to Medicaid? And then on the opposite end, I know they spoke a lot to housing. And so when you have Mm -hmm. to keep the lights on or get a nutritious meal, um, sometimes it's one or the other. And so we really need to address uh, systemic issues. So I'm excited to hear that those connections are starting to happen. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, very much so. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for what you're doing at UT Health. And I do want to shout out Brighter Bites as well, as you were saying, because they also give education to families once they provide that healthy meal, which I um, love and support. So thank you so much. And we are excited to continue to use this tool and advocate for um, the interconnectivity of it all. Thank you, Dr. Sherman. Thank you so much. Next up, we have Lisa Descent with Communities and Schools. On air with us now, we have Lisa Descent, CEO of our Friends Communities in Schools. Lisa, how are you doing after the holiday break? Well, thanks for asking. Doing well. Um, It was a good um, bit of break and um, ready for what's coming. Yeah, that was actually my smooth transition into what we're talking about today as well. So we're going to talk a little bit about community schools because we know we've had you on before talking about what happens during a school year and a little bit during the summer, but we want to talk about the breaks, especially holiday breaks and how communities and schools support students during that time. Mm, thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Um, and I think your um, previous caller was um, talking some about just um, the extended periods of time when our students are not um, within the, I'm going to say, safety net of the school environment, that um, schools and campuses nowadays are a great access point um, for students to access food um, during the school day. Food, um, where communities and schools, we um, partner with uh, the Houston Food Bank um, and our, um, provide students with a uh, through the program called Backpack Buddies, food to go home over the weekend. Um, And so these are some great points during the school day and school week to provide access to food, to do um, welfare checks, to ensure that um, mental health, um, physical health, um, sleeping, um, all of the healthy habits that we know are important um, for growing and developing kids are occurring. So, yes, when holiday breaks occur, we do aim to think ahead to um, help sustain families and students during those extended times um, away from campus. Um, And some of that is just in the form of planning with students and families for what the gaps may be, um, anticipating those for a week away from campus or two weeks away from campus, and then seeking to fill the gap through additional resources to get through the time. Yeah, that's awesome, especially engaging the whole family in that conversation Mm -hmm. um, and doing those check-ins. What have you seen most commonly that you can, if families are listening that might not have communities and schools at their school, to give advice during holiday breaks? Mm, um, I think to to anticipate that time away from campus has to be filled and productive um, and and cared for and, and as much as possible supervised ways. And so to, um, to think about holidays and the time away from campus differently than we think about the, the grind of the school week um, and to, to plan as best as possible for 
um, supervision and care, whether that's through direct family, extended family, or um, neighbors, but supervision of um, and that students, um, when at home, are able to to contact or be in direct contact with caretakers. So to plan for those um, extended times at home in that way, just the, the health and supervision of. Um, and then also to know that there um, are resources in the community that can begin providing uh, food um, if that is necessary um, to help sustain over the break and so to reach out to a school counselor or a nearby food pantry um, or the food bank um, in order to be prepared to fill those extended days where we know our kids are generally hungry when they're home. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're hitting like the nutrition, you're hitting the child care, mm-hmm. making sure yeah. oversight. I'm curious too about education, educational activities or whatever. I think of kids, you know, mm-hmm. kind of losing, uh, you know, the, their some of their educational uh, elements over the holidays, right? That they're not focused mm-hmm. on academics at all. Do, is there anything, you know, you'd recommend for parents to do just in terms of activities that are educational, keeping their kids engaged mm-hmm. that way? So I am a big proponent of play and break, and so mm. I think there is something it's important. It's just like kids too. need recess too, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So I think there is that. That is a big part of um, kind of the balance of life, and so um, to take advantage of that, um, the yeah. one thing that I think should be included intentionally is just ongoing reading. So now is the time to head to your school library or your local library um, and make sure that you have books on hand, Um, fun, engaging, the kind of books that are attractive to kids, not the chore kind of reading, (laughs) Um, but the the kind that that, their imagination Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you're That's right. Uh, you know, right. we as adults need breaks, right? Kids need breaks, right? Yeah. We, we've been advocating for recess for a long time for kids yes. at, at children risk. And unfortunately, that hasn't uh, moved forward in terms of policy at, at local levels. But um, it's something we still strongly believe the data shows when kids get those breaks, you know, it really helps them. Yeah. It's for strong mental health, you've got you've to be able to create balance and well, yeah, just as you were saying, too, they can have natural learning and make learning fun in a sense of just keep their minds engaged with books that are exciting. So your student or child kiddo loves reading. It's also something you can do with them um, or ask them about and get them excited. Or if they're learning a new language, put on one of their favorite movies and make the subtitles in the other language. That's what I do when I'm learning Spanish. And so there's little ways that you can throw throw learning and keep their minds engaged but um i'm also yeah a proponent as paul was saying as you were saying of kids need rest kids need break they need community um so having friends over letting them trusting parents go with other friends is really important yeah i want to yeah, hear your spanish sometime claire i haven't heard much, poquito <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep working that way. i'm gonna have i'm gonna have the little mermaid uh, <laughs> that's my level of spanish is that entire <laughs> Awesome. Well, Lisa, we do have fun five questions for you if you are open to answering them. Okay, let's let's go for the fun. <laughs> I know, I know. We might circle back. Does your family have any special holiday traditions? Oh, um, yes. Um, so I have three, my husband and I have uh, raising three kids, and um, maybe one of our favorites is um, searching out fun holiday lights. Um, and Great we activity. found a new one. Yeah, we found a new one over Thanksgiving. Um, the Houston Botanic Gardens has what's called oh. Radiant Nature. It's Japanese tea, uh, Japanese <laughs> lanterns. Totally recommend it. Oh, okay. Houston That's Botanical a good one. Garden. I'll put that on my list. I know. Yeah. I just learned about the Houston yeah. Cistern by oh, Buffalo Bayou Park. I go to that park every day, and I did not know it was there. They have Christmas lights up, too. So you can keep learning, Claire. I know. Lifelong learner. Uh, do I get the second question? You do. All you right. Do. All right. So uh, thanks for uh, entertaining us with your answers, Lisa. So how about, are you looking forward to any special holiday sales? Are there any things you're looking for during this holiday oh. season? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I'm I'm not such a great shopper, but again, my kids, any, like uh, if there are shoes on, they just grow so much. There's shoes on sale, when the milk gets a good sale. Like, the yeah. basic. Those basic needs. <laughs> no, I, that's have. the Black Friday yeah. sale I need is my groceries. Yeah. Lisa, yeah. I'm curious because I was a, a child in the age of the Tickle Me Elmo battle. What is the, the toy of the year? Oh, oh, interesting. Um, 
What are our kids into? I don't know. I, know, um, I think we've toys. gone from the Lego single toy. My 21-year-old daughter, I know she just wants money. Money and <laughs> gift cards. That's yeah. where she's at. Yeah, right. um, yeah. My, um, Legos. Always Legos. Awesome. Yeah. That was just my question because I'm so disconnected from kids smaller and I'm not a parent, <laughs> so I'm always wondering. Um, my next one is, what is your favorite book that you like to read with your family? Oh, thanks. Um uh, Harry Potter has been such a fun one, and I think I have appreciated it because it's just a good, nice, long series. But um, my kids were, you know, interested interested in reading. They read through that series, and now just like uh, want to read everything. Like it has really sparked their interest to find more and more books yeah. to read. So I feel like we can kind of put Harry Potter as Christmas movies, <laughs> as much as I see them on TV during Christmas time. That's true. <laughs> and then, Paul, do you want to ask the final yeah, one? Yeah, yeah. So I don't know if you're a karaoke family, if you like to sing with the kids, yeah. but if you are, and, or if you were thinking about being a karaoke star, what would your song be that you would go to? Um, only in front of my family, because never, ever would I do that. <laughs> but, um, it's not a public activity uh, for you. Okay. Not for me. Um, uh, the Frozen, um, Let It Go, is a fun one. I have two daughters, so it's a fun one in our house. So you start it, and then you, you pass the mic, which is a great strategy. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. They're much cuter than I am. But that oh. is, karaoke is another great activity for the holidays, for the family. Well, right? kids yeah. have not lost giving little performances. I oh, love when my cousins yeah. decide to do a show for their family. It's so fun. Well, awesome. Lisa, thank you so much for providing information to families today and always with communities and schools. And we look forward to continuing to have you all on and hope you as well have a restful holiday break. Thank you. Wishing you all the same. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining. Happy holidays. All right. That wraps us up for today. Thank you so much to everyone for listening to Growing Up in America by Children at Risk. If you enjoyed this discussion, tune in next and every Wednesday from 12 to 1. Paul, it's been a great show. It was great. You you showed up with that grand entrance, but it was great to have you here. (laughs) I'll never let it down. Well, I mean, now you're a seasoned veteran of this show, so we'll have you on a few times. Awesome. Well, we do this week, or we do this this week and every week for children. For children. With a dream, my cardigan. Welcome to the land of fame, access. Am I gonna fit in? Jumped in the cab, here I am for the first time. Look to my right, and I see the Hollywood sign. This is all so crazy. Everybody seems so famous. My tummy's turning, and I'm feeling kinda homesick. Too much pressure, and I'm nervous. Cause when the taxi man turned on the radio, and a Jay Z song was on, and a Jay Z song was on. And the Jay-Z song was on So I put my hands up to play on my song The butterflies fly away Now I'm in my head like yeah Moving my hips like yeah Got my hands up to play on my song You know I'm gonna be okay Yeah It's a party in the USA Yeah It's a party in the USA Howdy folks, this is Big Kev your most excellent host, the Roots Rock Revolution, and you lucky folks, you're listening to KPFT, Houston, 90.1 FN, HD1. Check us out. You'll love it. If you came across someone struggling with hunger, how would you recognize them? By their clothes? Their age? The way they speak? Would you notice a 16-year-old boy who got got his first job, not for extra spending money, but to help feed his little sisters? Or a mother who's in between jobs and sometimes goes to bed hungry so her kids can have dinner. Or a 14-year-old girl who signs up to every after-school activity not to make friends, but just to get something to eat. Or a retiree who fell ill and had to choose between getting medicine or groceries. I am the one in eight Americans who struggle with hunger. People you pass by every day but never knew were hungry. I am hunger in America. Hunger can be hard to recognize. Learn why at IamHungerInAmerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America, 200 Food Bank Strong, and the Ad Council.
has been a teacher for over 40 years. One day, I think one of the students had asked the question and he didn't remember the answer. And I also noticed that he was letting his class out earlier than they were supposed to let out. I was really starting to worry. Levi and I talked about how it would change our lives, but he was there beside me. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash our stories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. The backseat. Check the backseat. Gets in your head, right?